0: Hello, and welcome to the Next in Health podcast. I'm Igor Belakernitsky, a principal with Strategy End, where I get to help leading health organizations with their strategies and operating models. And what is Next in Health? Well, what's next in health is a whole bunch of deals. And today we have the dynamic duo with us to tell us about what is happening in the deal space. We have Rohl van den Acker, who is the deals leader in our life sciences and medical device practice. And we have Nick Donker, who is the deals leader in the payer-provider practice. So Nick and Rule, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having us, Igor.
0: Excellent. Well, I always look forward to these conversations because we have the highest ratio of insights per second when we talk to you. So very, very excited about this. And maybe let's start with just a quick look back at the year in deals so far. And Nick, I'll start with you and then go to Ruhl and for your impressions of the year in deals 2023.
1: Yeah, thanks, Igor. Very much appreciate the opportunity to share what's been going on in the health services space. And if we recap the last 12 months, what we've seen in health services is a fairly resilient market. And when I say resilient, my focus is on volume of transactions as opposed to transaction value and or multiples. As we all know, the strength of the market is often predicated around just volume and number of deals and activity in the marketplace. And coming off of record banner years in both 21 and 22, the latest deal activity we have through May and even June for that matter of 23 indicates that we were down very slightly overall from a volume perspective. And that's even in the midst of very unique headwinds that have been emerging over the last 12 to 18 months. These would include interest rate hikes, obviously by the Fed, increased regulatory scrutiny, overall challenges around raising funds and the closing of the capital markets, for lack of a better phrase, with initial public offerings in the health services space. And then a general sort of pause by even some entities, private equity and otherwise, in actually dabbling in the health services market. But even with all those headwinds, we're very, very lucky that health services, and again, payer provider, as you indicated, has been fairly resilient, only down slightly with a nice potential uptake here in the short and long-term future.
2: Yeah, Igor, it's great to be back on the show. And thanks for inviting us and to share the stage here with my esteemed colleague, Mr. Dunker. I think for Pharma and Life Sciences, you know, the last time we spoke, Igor, I think was, you know, around the beginning of the year when we were looking forward to 23. We were optimistic, right? It had been a tough year in 22, both from a volume and value perspective in biopharma and medtech, But we were optimistic. And what we talked about when we last met Igor was you know, the fact that companies are looking for it, looking at their portfolios and the embedded losses of exclusivity that we're expected to see at the end of the decade, and companies having to make proactive moves. To address those portfolio gaps. So that gave us a reason for optimism when we last met, right? If we look where we are, sort of six months into the year, I think we see that playing out. You know, we're definitely up sort of year on year when we compare to the first six months of last year. I think when we look at a larger look back, clearly it's not to the levels of the zero interest rate environment deal making activity that we saw in FY20 and FY21. But I think those were the anomalies much more than what we currently see. From a biopharma perspective, we see a lot of exciting innovation happening in therapeutic areas like oncology and immunology. We see people leaning forward with some cautious optimism into those areas and really leaning in to do deal making in areas where they feel they have a right to win. So from my perspective, Igor, It's sort of been playing out as we expected, and it sort of solidifies our conviction that the rest of the year is going to continue on that same footing.
0: Thank you both. Very helpful overview. And let's maybe shift our gaze now forward to the rest of the year and beyond. There's obviously the buyers and the sellers and the investors in the marketplace, but they're not the only ones who set the tune. There's another very important market participant, which is the regulators, and very often it is they who are kind of the wild card in determining whether something is going to go forward or not and what's the overall deal environment. So we'd love to hear from both of you again how you see regulators acting in the marketplace in the future, and then Rule, let's stay with you and give us your thoughts on what the regulators are going to do, what to watch in the life sciences space.
2: Yeah, Igor, it's a great question. I mean, listen, when I just said that things have sort of been playing out like we sort of would have expected, the one wrinkle I would say is the role of the regulator over the last six months. And I think this is sort of agnostic to sort of biopharma health services. It's applying to sort of the broader M&A market overall, but obviously there's been some specific cases in biopharma where the regulator has stepped in, right? So I do think that deal makers in the industry, generally speaking, are taking somewhat of a more cautious stance when it relates to you know larger M and A, particularly in sort of the over twenty five billion range. We see people being very deliberate about the antitrust risk that is embedded in certain transactions that they might contemplate. I do think that over the next six months, as some of those cases work its way through the process, we're going to get some more clarity on this. But I certainly think that that regulator taking a more proactive stance is featuring in the minds of deal makers as they embark on their growth trajectory. The second point, Igor, maybe right, and it's sort of not directly related to the regulators, but in biopharma, we spent a lot of time talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. I do think that was on the radar when we last met in December. I think companies are still trying to understand the impact of that particularly when it relates to go forward pricing ability and what that means to deal models and returns and I do think similar to my prior point there's some more clarity that we expect in the next 6 to 12 months in terms of how that precisely will work but safe to say that those two vectors that I just sketched out are active on the minds of deal makers in the biopharma space and have maybe served as a little bit of a headwind over
1: the last six months. Hey, rule! I love the words you used there, cautious and deliberate. I think those are applicable, as you appropriately stated, across both the pharma and the health services landscape. I would tell you, Igor, that if you put on the cautious and deliberate mindset and that hat right from a health services lens, We've seen a number of recent examples of large-scale transformational transactions across the U.S., whereby regulatory bodies at the federal level have taken their appropriate liberty to review, and in certain cases, unwind and or challenge and actively challenge, I should say, these transactions. So that's happening on the national level. I would anticipate, you know, with this continued volume of activity in all things health services, that the regulators, and again, I'm not a prognosticator of what the regulators will do. In fact, I'm actually a law school dropout. I would say in all honesty, though, that the ability for them to continue to review cases whereby they impact healthcare in particular, they impact the access, the quality, and the cost of the care are going to be paramount to the constituents, i.e. patients and consumers in those respective markets. So anything the transaction-related that would impair any of those three buckets of you know healthcare is ripe, obviously, for review. One other wrinkle I would say that we're seeing an uptick on, and this has been bandied about in the state legislatures for many years now, specifically by some of the larger states that have been at the forefront of some of these transformational transactions and or private equity investments, is actual state legislation to add yet another layer of review for any type of substantive transaction occurring in the marketplace, particularly around healthcare, right? I mean, there's always this overarching notion that there's some sort of state approval for sector agnostic transformational deals, but as it relates to healthcare, again, with the focus on access, quality, and cost of care, that certain states are stepping in. And and as we speak right now on this podcast, it's safe to say that we are aware of at least one large state whereby there's active legislation that is on the docket to add yet another review before deals are consummated. Again, that could impair a whole host of things from a deals pipeline and deals timeline perspective, but it's yet just another sense of how important both buyers, sellers, and the markets need to be with respect to current and pending future legislation and
0: review. This is a very helpful watch out from both of you. So it's not enough to just find the right match. You have to meet the parents. And so staying maybe was this theme of, the different stakeholders and important players in the field. We talked about the regulators. Let's switch gears to shareholders. What role do you feel they will play going forward? How might their attitudes and behaviors change? And rule again, let's start with you.
2: A couple of thoughts there, Igor. I think in this environment, delivering shareholder value and portfolio renewal are topics that are top of mind for both boards and C-suites more than ever. You know, we've done a lot of research at Pwc around portfolio renewal about divestitures and the empirical evidence shows that the companies that are active in portfolio renewal that can execute divestitures and acquisitions concurrently are the ones that deliver the best returns right so I do think you know that this concept of being at your front foot doing everything through a value lens and making sure that, This concept of shareholder returns in front and center remains high on everybody's agenda. I think the other side of the coin of that is, if you do not, and we've seen some examples of that in the market, I think Nick will talk about this as well, private equity, despite the challenging credit situations and the higher interest rates, still has a tremendous amount of dry powder that is willing to spend... On businesses that have fallen behind from a shareholder returns perspective, but are still in attractive end markets, right? And I think over the course of the last six months, we've seen some examples of that with public to private transactions where private equity has stepped in. So I do think that concept of knowing what you own and whether you are the rightful owner for a set of businesses, portfolio renewal, the ability to do acquisitions and divestitures concurrently And delivering that, because if you don't, there's a lot of private capital out there that's willing to deploy this, is something that's going to remain a top focus area in the biopharma, broader biotech and pharma services market. So that's how I would sort of answer that question, Igor.
1: Yeah, and roll. maybe I'll just double click for one second around that, because I think you did a a fantastic job of highlighting the shareholder return element in a for-profit world, right? And when you think about that and you think about the portfolio renewal I'm 100% supportive of that. And we're actually seeing that in the market right now across both the for-profit and not-for-profit categories. Interestingly enough, when you think about not-for-profit, right, and the shareholders for those types of entities, generally you're referring to community, right, the community as a whole. And how do they view these types of divestitures or portfolio renewals as it relates to their own services that are being provided or business units that are impacting their local community. And I think what we've seen both during and post-pandemic is a consistent portfolio review of the services that are in play, the services that are working well, and the services that individuals on these not-for-profit entities realize are not core and maybe even not meaningful to their community. So how do they exit those in a meaningful way and then take those profits, hopefully, right, the profits from the divestiture of that particular asset and then redeploy that capital to their local communities, right? And again, I say local communities, meaning that a lot of these not-for-profits are multi-jurisdictional, multi-state and have vast amounts of communities, not just one state or one area. And so how are they impacting that? And I think that PwC... In a shameless plug here, I will admit, we did some work academically and otherwise around the value of portfolio renewal, and it doesn't just apply to those that are profit-seeking, publicly traded entities, that definition of renewal and value should be extended to all for-profit and not-for-profit entities, including private equity, because at the end of the day, it's all impacting healthcare and lives. And I think it's an interesting thing to sort of tease out there. So that's the only thing I wanted to add, Igor, from a not for profit world. But I think it's an important element because when you think about the largest health systems, those health systems on the provider side and on the payer side, the vast majority that have a significant concentration are not for profit.
0: Nick, that's a helpful addition and clarification. And I wanted to follow up. Rule talked a little bit about the role of private equity on the life sciences and medical device side. I'm curious your thoughts on the role of private equity in the payer provider space. I know there's been a lot of investments, for example, in physician practices. So what do you expect to see from private equity going forward?
1: Yeah, thanks, Igor. I would tell you, yeah. uh, commensurate with Roll's earlier comments, there's some fundamentals at play here around private equity and investing in healthcare. And that is, there is uh, unquenchable appetite or thirst for deals and at first, in what we've seen over the last four to five years, if not longer, is the roll-up strategy across all things, position practice and all the ologies that they've now sort of played out, right? And now they're getting into further further downstream, unique, full cash pay, non-insurance related efforts, right? Because they've potentially exhausted, even though I say that every year they've exhausted potentially the opportunity for roll-ups, there's the next wave of rollups or the roll-ups that are being taken public, et cetera. So that being said, though, at the same time, private equity has done a phenomenal job of fundraising in the marketplace with dry powder to redeploy that capital as part of their investment scheme within health services. I would say over the last five to six months, they haven't been as active based on the numbers as we've seen, but they've closed some smaller deals. I think the private equity firms as a whole, as we think about the next six months and even the next year, have tons of capital to deploy. I think there's going to be a sort of a reset of multiples across all sectors, right? So not just the physician practice play, right? But all sectors, and they're in need of private equity dollars to help with their growth strategy, right? To help insert and inject some new management talent, some new thoughts around strategy, some new market growth initiatives. And all companies can be helped by different perspectives and growth. I think the other thing at play here, Igor, as it relates to private equity, that we're starting to holistically see, which we haven't seen in the past, is private equity's willingness to partner with both for-profit and not-for-profit entities around all things healthcare whether that's sectors like a revenue cycle management, whether that's sectors and turnarounds for specific provider organizations, there's been a willingness to then partner capital-wise and contribute certain of their portfolio companies with others that are in the not private equity space that we haven't seen in a while. And it's further gonna be enhanced by the fact that across all of this, and Will sees this just as much in the pharma space, is you've got a retail presence out there, sitting out there that is looking to invest In healthcare, so your non traditional retailers that are looking and sitting at the table now. So, the old days it used to be for profit and not for profit arguing over assets. Then private equity came in strong in the sector about 10 to 12, 15 years ago. And now we've got another constituent at the table, which is your non traditional retailers that are looking at healthcare assets. And so, it creates for a nice little game of chicken with respect to who's going to win the asset, how they're going to pay for it, and then what's the strategy to help provide care post-close of any
0: acquisition. A very insightful point. And as we come up to the end of this great conversation, just wanted to hear some parting words from both of you for those of our listeners who are out there in the markets. We already heard your injunction to be cautious and deliberate, but what else do you have to say as you look to the year ahead in deals? And Nick, let's start with you and then Rule, bring us home and close it up.
1: Yeah, thanks, Igor. I think from a health services perspective, the important thing to pay attention to over the next six to 12 months is any potential legislative or tax changes that may or may not impact deal activity. But assuming that doesn't happen, we are, again, fully behind this notion of a continuing resilient healthcare deals environment. And knowing the tailwinds of private, public capital, strong balance sheets, strategic reviews, and new innovative care delivery models that are out there, we anticipate these factors and among many others likely to drive continued resilient and or increasing growth. That's being one point. The second point is once we see a stabilization of the debt markets and interest rates sort of 12 to 18 months after this, given all the factors that I mentioned previously, yet another reason why we feel that the health services market as a whole is rightly positioned for continued growth and overall volume of activity.
2: Yeah. And Igor, for biopharma, I think if we look back, we had a good first half of the year, right? Both in the private rounds, both from an M&A perspective, And we would expect that trend to continue for all the reasons that I've sort of gone over at the beginning of the call in the latter half of the year, right? But maybe the best way to sum it up is a way I heard somebody in the industry talk about this. We've all been to this Irish pub that has a tile above the bar that says, in God we trust, everybody else bring cash. The mantra for biopharma in 23 almost seems to be, in God we trust, everybody else bring good data. If you have good data... Clinical differentiation, that is what people are looking for. There still is plenty of capital, but it's more disciplined and cautious in today's market than it was two years ago. If you have clinical differentiation, if you have a strong data set, people are willing to trade and do M&A. People are willing to back and fund those IDs, And I think that's going to be the market that we're going to see from an M&A, IPO, venture funding perspective over the course of FY23. I think that's a healthy environment to be in. It's a little bit of a trend break with what we saw perhaps in FY20 and 21 in a zero interest rate environment where a lot of Me Too IDs could get funding. But I think that's the world we live in today. M&A will be abundant, but it'll be in the areas where clinical differentiation is strong and people have strong data sets. And that's where I think the market is going to be and where we'll see activity. That's my way of thinking about the rest of 23 and where we see M&A moving into 24 as well.
0: Gentlemen, thank you for the fantastic and insightful conversation and great points about how to move forward, portfolio renewal, watching the regulators and data being kind of the new currency. So really interesting. And can't wait to have you back in six months to ring in the new year in deals. So thanks for being with us.
2: Always a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Igor.
0: For more on these topics and other health industry insights driven by policy, innovation, and care delivery changes, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. That way you also get access to all the previous episodes. Until next time, this has been Next in Health.